You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. The latest geopolitical intrigue surrounds, of, of all people, WWE superstar John Cena. And his name is John Cena! So Cena recently did an interview where he referred to Taiwan as a country while he was promoting the latest Fast and Furious movie, which, by the way, great franchise. They're not paying me to say this. I really do love these movies. Uh, this got him in a lot of trouble with China, where they expect the movie to be pretty big. So Cena gave an apology, a really abject, kind of almost groveling apology in Mandarin, because he speaks Mandarin, on Chinese social media. So this basically raises a question, right? How does China have the ability to censor an American wrestling star and actor? And what does this say about the future of global soft power in a world where Hollywood has to cater so heavily to the Chinese market. That's what we're going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here with Jen Williams and Alex Ward, and we are really excited to talk about something a little bit lighter for once. So excited about this, let me tell you. Oh yeah, brother. Yeah, so Alex is, is, is a huge WWE fan. He was. told us before the show that was. he likes to play with the action figures. That was true. WWE. That was true. Yeah, yeah. You say past tense like, like <laughs> we believe you. You know, he's just really amped to talk about John Cena, who apparently got his start playing a villainous white rapper in WWE matches, which is like a thing I can't get over because now he's, you know, he's like the, he's the face, which in wrestling parlance means uh, he, he's the good guy. He's the one you want to root for. But <laughs> pro wrestling is a strange world. No question. Look, we, we, we could talk about John Cena's actual WWE career all day because we spent a bunch of the prep time for the show watching videos of him, like, saying some weird stuff about reverse discrimination and illegal immigration in his rapping. You hate me because I'm white. That's reverse discrimination. I hate you for two words, illegal immigration. I, I'm not making this up. It's it's really genuinely strange stuff. But putting putting that aside, the show's really about what's going on with John Cena and China. So, Alex, this isn't the first time that China has gotten its sort of sensorial fingers into American pop culture. No, it's incredibly important to understand that, you know, China basically has a veto on what gets made in American pop culture. And the reason is China has over a billion consumers that American media wants to see its stuff. So whether it's film, whether it's TV, 
really kind of whatever Hollywood makes, they always have to consider Chinese censors in mind. And they're literally censors. Like there are people in China whose job it is to look at American media and decide or say like this can't be like a movie like Deadpool, right, was too violent for Chinese consumerism. So it got banned. Um, Some Pirates of the Caribbean movies got banned because they showed uh, ghouls and like ghosts. And that's not allowed in Chinese film or like they, they don't, the Chinese government doesn't want people to see it. And there's also political stuff like in Doctor Strange, the ancient one um, is supposed to come from Tibet. But in the Marvel Universe, in the movie Doctor Strange, they did not mention that backstory because that would not have passed um, Chinese censors. And, so, and in fact, the character is played by a white British actress. Right, Tilda Swinton. Exactly. So like, you wonder some deci- why the Hollywood makes certain decisions or they don't make certain decisions. And like a lot of the reason has to do with China. Um, now, this sounds sort of like a bit silly, but it can actually get super serious. Like, let's think about the NBA, which has made a huge play, like a massive play to get more popular in China. You might remember Yao Ming, like when they found him and, you know, he became a Houston Rocket, like part of that was because they, you know, he was a great player, but also like he would be a great entryway into the Chinese market. And and basketball is becoming extremely popular there. Well, you may remember during the Hong Kong protests of 2019, the Houston Rockets owner was like, hey, we, you know, this is bad what China is doing. And it led China to stop showing Houston Rockets games in China And then, you know, media started asking NBA superstars like LeBron James about what he thought. And James, for example, said like, look, I don't think this Houston Rockets owner is very aware of what's happening. And so effectively apologized for the crackdown on Hong Kong. And and when people were wondering, well, why would he do that? Well, some people thought, look, maybe LeBron isn't following the Hong Kong issue that closely, whatever it is. And like, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But the main reason it seems is because there were dollars on the line, right? If China stops showing NBA games, the NBA stops making a lot of money. So... That was sort of long-winded, but a long way to say that this John Cena thing is not new. It's part of a long-term trend of China basically dictating what can and cannot be said in the United States or can and cannot be created. And it leads even some of our top celebrities, including former fake Boston rappers who wrestle John Cena, to grovel on Chinese media. Yeah, and it, you know, it actually extends far beyond Hollywood. This is just the latest example, and it tends to be one of the most prominent because Hollywood celebrities have a lot of uh, you know fans and a lot of reach. But it's also like in the fashion industry is a huge issue um, with China essentially extending its authoritarian censorship arm toward U.S. and other Western clothing companies. So the issue here. Well, there have been many issues. So one is actually related to to what we just said. In in 2018, The Gap made a T-shirt that had a a map of China in the design, and the map omitted Taiwan, parts of Tibet, and the islands in the South China Sea that China claims as, you know, its own sovereign territory. And so China got really, really mad. Uh, This has happened also with Versace, Givenchy, Coach. They all did T-shirts similarly that had Hong Kong and Macau as countries, and they had to then apologize. Versace literally had to put out a company statement saying, Versace reiterates that we love China deeply and we resolutely respect China's territory and national sovereignty. Like, this is how serious these statements get. But it also goes just beyond geography, especially with the fashion companies. So Xinjiang, the, the region where China is putting tens of thousands of Uyghur Muslims in internment camps that they call re-education camps and subjecting them to torture and forced sterilization and essentially what amounts to brainwashing. 
that is also what China's huge cotton producing region and a huge amount of cotton that is used, you know, in clothing around the world, but in particular for Western clothing companies comes from Xinjiang. And so companies are now under pressure from human rights organizations and other other groups in the U.S. and elsewhere in the West to essentially divest and to stop using cotton that's produced with what is functionally slave labor in Xinjiang and have put out statements. But recently, we saw this huge backlash that was promoted, it seems, by the Chinese government, you know, on, on social media channels like Weibo, et cetera, and this huge kind of boycott of lots of fashion designers from H&M to Nike, et cetera. And it was this huge brouhaha. And it goes to show that, like, China is not messing around when it comes to its global economic power, and it is using that to essentially shield itself from criticism over its human rights abuses. And it's really serious because I would say that it's a good thing for companies that, you know, I, I've shopped at H&M, Zara, places like that. I think I probably own some Nikes. I don't know. I would definitely not want my clothing that I'm purchasing to be made by slave labor. And so I would support, you know, these companies doing stuff like that. But then the Chinese market is so huge that they run the risk of running afoul of the Chinese government and facing these huge boycotts. I mean, there was a, a video, um, it was some reality TV kind of competition show in China, and one of the, the guys was wearing like an Adidas shirt, and so they reversed, Adidas was one of the companies that had run afoul, and so the the image, they reversed it, so, so it just showed the Adidas logo backwards, so you couldn't, like, you could still see what it was, but like, they changed it, so... You know, so it wouldn't be promoting it. Like, that's how far they go to punish companies if they even say a word about Xinjiang. And so it's funny in the John Cena sense that, like, yeah, it's, it's hilarious that this is, like, a thing that happened. But it, it gets to really serious things when, like, companies are being punished for trying to stand up and, and support really fundamental basic human rights. And it, it's a growing challenge because of China's economic and soft political might. Yeah, there's this fun new term in the discussion surrounding democracy called extraterritorial repression, right? Very fun, exciting, really mm. rolls off the tongue yeah. pretty well, right? <laughs> I bet John Cena could make a rap out of that. <laughs> he could. I mean, like I said, he rhymed illegal immigration with reverse discrimination. Again, like that really needs, cannot be emphasized enough. That's the not, thing not that good, actually happened. Good. Extraterritorial uh, repression leads to political depression. Oh, look at Alex. Maybe you have the chops to be a white rapper on uh, <laughs> in the WWE. Maybe the WWE minor leagues. I too am from Boston and also have an eight pack. Uh-huh. <laughs> Can confirm on that point. Um, so like this, this term refers to the way that, and man, this is, this is not as funny. This term, this term refers to the fact that, uh, Dictators are increasingly showing an ability to crack down on human rights from their own people outside their own borders, right? So it's things like Kim Jong-un assassinating his brother or Russia poisoning uh, a spy who had flipped in Britain. Or, you know, the government of Belarus, like we just saw, forcing down a plane uh, that was flying through Belarusian airspace to essentially arrest a political opponent. Um, right. And our, yeah. our friends over today explained actually are going to have a whole episode on Belarus. So so we'll link to that. So check that out. Yeah, definitely worth listening to. Um, 
And so this is like this is like a real phenomenon, right? And, the, and typically it refers to these kinds of more aggressive, like you're trying to kill somebody or you're trying to abduct somebody or something like that. But like the the John Cena stuff and all of this censorship, which we haven't even talked about it in video games. It's it's strikingly rampant there, an increasingly significant industry. But the point is like across the culture industry now, there's a kind of soft extraterritorial repression when it comes to China in which statements abroad by people who should enjoy free speech protections in their countries, right? Like John Cena is an American, right? No, no one in the U.S. would ban him from criticizing the U.S. government in any meaningful sense and certainly wouldn't force him to apologize for saying Taiwan is a country. But he had to because it's in the economic interests of the studio that he operates in. And it seems like there needs to be some kind of recognition that this actually is allowing dictators to strengthen their regimes by way of controlling the international, the global public sphere, not just what's happening at home. And like some kind of policy response, right? Because this makes repression at home more effective. American companies, by being forced to censor themselves and their employees, are in effect contributing to strengthening and maintaining the Chinese Communist Party's rule. It's pretty horrible. Think about it. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the problem. I, I have sort of a couple of things to say about this. First of all, it's just, you know, there's artistic expression that is genuinely being sort of repressed here. And, and it is because of of the bucks. Um, but beyond just the artistic expression is just like, it's also being stymied because we are fine selling in China. And like, that doesn't matter to us as much as like what Chinese government's actually doing to people. Um, and it's forcing silence uh, across the board. I find that fascinating. The most ridiculous example to me I find. I know I mentioned a bunch of banned or censored movies before. Did you know that the movie Christopher Robin is banned in China? I did know that because you told us a okay. little bit before we take this episode. Okay, fair enough. But for those, Christopher Robin was a movie about like the creation, if I recall, about Winnie the Pooh and all that kind of stuff. And the reason it's banned, who could ban Winnie the Pooh? It's because there's a massive social media movement um, that basically uses the likeness of Winnie the Pooh to criticize Xi Jinping because they kind of have a have a bit of a similarity in facial features. Um, or at least that's what a lot of people say on social media. And so she and the government are so sensitive to this that they've banned like all Winnie the Pooh images and Christopher Robin. So like it, it is astounding to me that this is sort of where we're at. And we're okay with it as a nation, like and, and as industries. And there are companies that are basically trying to lobby the US government and say like, don't change this practice. Like we need to sell. Like we understand that bad things are happening, but Let's be real. This is we still need China. And like perhaps the most egregious example most recently was the movie Mulan, which filmed in Xinjiang. Like, <laughs> right? Um, and like then people ask, like, you know, Disney, did you know about this? Like, oh, we had no idea we were near these concentration camps. Like, uh, like either someone on that team is just not reading the news or they just didn't care because well, it, it actually was worse. They remember they actually thanked the police forces. That's right. That's and right. And the authorities in Xinjiang yeah. for helping them, you know, essentially work as fixers and stuff on the ground, like helping them make the movie happen. And they thanked them in the credits. And that was like, uh, excuse me. You're totally right. So like this, I mean, this is where we're at is I granted, I'm sure there was someone on the, on the Disney and Mulan team that was like, well, we want to be in, you know, in China and give it some authenticity and some grounding. I'm like, okay, fine, but is that worth promoting and thanking the Chinese government and the exact officials doing the repression of the Uyghurs? It's it, like, but that's where we're at. Like, it's happening now. And John Cena apologizing over Taiwan, which super briefly, 
The U.S. only recognizes um, the People's Republic of China as a nation. The Republic of China, Taiwan, is uh, we have relations with, but we consider as part of one China. Um, and any time the U.S. makes any, or, or American celebrities make any indication uh, or any even gesture that like we consider Taiwan a country, they freak out. So like that's sort of the basis here, really since 1979, but even before that. So anyway, like that's just where we're at. And I don't know how you change it, because on the one hand, like should the government basically say, like, I, actually, actually, you know, I have no policy response because, like, this is really hard. Right? How <laughs> um, do you like you ban apologies? Like, yeah, like that's what you, what, also banning free speech and interfering or, in commerce. So, yeah. So here's here's my idea. Here's my my idea is that you create an automatic, or if not automatic, then like a fund that has some criteria that can be used to support any company that experiences economic loss as a result of an attempt to intimidate or censor them by an authoritarian regime abroad. I don't like have a blueprint of how this legislation would work. <laughs> it's just an idea I've I've been kicking about when I've been thinking about this stuff. But like the concern here, right, is that people won't go see Furious Nine, that there will be some kind of boycott in China as a result of John Cena's statements. Well, you know, there's that's a certain amount of money that the studio could make up if the U.S. government paid them, and it wouldn't be a ton of money out of the U.S. government's pocket. The problem here is like creating perverse incentives. Somebody makes a you know terrible movie, and they go out and have the star say like Taiwan is a country, free Hong Kong, and then they have Chinese boycotts, and they reap a bunch of money as a result of it. There'd have to be some mechanism about like pre-existing projections about what the movie would have made otherwise. <laughs> we'll workshop the policy a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, we're we're just free associating here on a podcast. <laughs> this we isn't not, a white paper. No. We're not presenting this to the government. <laughs> no, we're solving this now, you guys. We're doing this now. We know that some members of Congress do at least like to come on our show and maybe listen to it. So if you all have any ideas as to like how to protect the free speech rights of John Cena, which like I wanted to say sarcastically is the pressing issue of our time, but like it actually is kind of important. So they should think of they should think of ways to do this, right? Like create the Zach Beecham Fund for protecting John Cena's free speech. So I think there's actually like an additional issue here that's worth just just touching on a bit. That goes a little bit beyond even just like the kind of censorship from China of American, you know, film stars or, or whoever. Companies that are affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party are buying up Hollywood movie studios, uh, theater chains, etc. And so there is a concern there that the and again, I don't mean, you know, just Chinese people buying things. I'm talking specifically affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party. Very different. This isn't some kind of like. Chinese panic here that I'm trying to, that they're taking over America. This is definitely not what I'm trying to say here, just so we're super clear. But, you know, they are actively buying, and for, you know, economic reasons primarily, um, investing in in movie theater chains and uh, and things like that, and actual production studios. But there's a concern that because of, we already know about this other censorship that's going on, that's like down to a really detailed level. The concern is that, that this censorship would happen before the movie is ever come out, right? Even the selection of what movies are made, what stories can be told, the framing of the stories. Like, if Chinese Communist Party-affiliated officials have a significant say in what movies are made in Hollywood studios, that could end up having a chilling effect on on free speech in a way that isn't even, you know, doesn't end up being as visible. Um, And it just kind of happens. I mean, the F9, the, you know, John Cena and also Vin Diesel and Michelle Rodriguez and a lot of other people, uh, Ludacris, um, that movie is is being directed by a Taiwanese-American. So would that 
have been made by a studio that is, you know, maybe partially owned by someone affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party? I don't know, right? And so that's, I think, a deeper issue. And I think there are, again, like policy responses that can potentially work there. At the same time, you know, do you just ban Chinese investors? Well, that's not really fair, right? But how do you do that? Like, do you put in certain rules in place that they can and can't do that? And then, you know, you end up running into the issue of is the government dictating free speech? And then then you have that whole problem again. So I think it's really complicated. We see this at these Confucius Institutes on university campuses that are funded uh, in whole or in part by the Chinese Communist Party that are nominally just like language institutes to, to teach, you know, Mandarin Chinese to American college students. But they also uh, have a lot of cultural and political kind of lessons that are kind of baked in. And there's a lot of controversy in the U.S. now about should they be banned because they're spreading Chinese government propaganda in the U.S., et cetera, et cetera. So I, I don't think it's quite as simple as just backing up movie studios who or movie stars who who say the wrong thing and step in it. Um, and again, like it's it goes beyond. It's literally like every industry, like Marriott, the hotel chain, got in big trouble because they had a survey, like a customer experience survey that had listed China as like a separate country from Taiwan. (laughs) And they had to issue an apology on Weibo. Like, it's that level of detail. And it's really disturbing, right, that another country... Nobody pays attention to those. Not not one single human being. Right, but someone did. And that's the thing, someone did. And it made its way to the Chinese government and to Weibo, you know, social media. And Marriott had to put out an apology. Like, if it's at that level... It's really insidious that the Chinese Communist Party has that much power to control speech for U.S. companies. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to tackle a few of your questions. That's right. You, the audience, gets a voice in this episode uh, that have been building up over the course of the past few months. And we're going to dive in. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. 
So welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about China and John Cena and international censorship and extraterritorial repression and all of that stuff. Um, now we're moving on to something else. We're going to talk about a series of different questions that have been building up in our inbox from you, the listeners. And by the way, we we love hearing from you. Send us these questions at worldly at vox.com, and we will answer a section of them. We can't get to all of them, but we will try our best to answer as many as we can. So let's get into it. The first question is from Andrew, who asked us, quote unquote, I've always wondered about how exactly Iran gained its current international reputation. I've heard isolated stories of the terrorist acts Iran has either carried out or bankrolled over the years, but it never struck me as being much worse than Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, or for that matter, Israel or even the United States in terms of the number of innocent lives lost to the actions they take to advance their foreign policy. I've just never heard it clearly explained why we should be more worried about Iran's aggressive tendencies or nuclear ambitions than we are of any other similar-sized country. Thank you for any light you can shed. Now, this question, like, I, I almost think it was planted by Jen uh, for <laughs> her own purposes, so she's really keyed up to talk about it. So, Jen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you take the first crack at this one. We're going to try to answer a bunch of questions in this section, so I'm going to try to be as brief as possible, and talking about the history going back to World War II and before is difficult, but I'm going to try. So I'm going to watch John Cena videos in the meantime. Okay, amazing. Perfect. So a lot of the answer has to do with the U.S.-Iran relationship, right? And the U.S.-Israel relationship. The U.S. and Iran weren't always at each other's throats, weren't always enemies. And much of the reason why Iran is seen as this kind of big, bad international pariah is, yes, in part because it does really bad things like sponsoring terrorist groups that act throughout the region. The, the questioner, you know, Andrew, mentioned sporadic individual terrorist attacks. So one of the big ones, obviously, the Marine barracks bombing in, in the 1980s in Lebanon by Hezbollah. Hezbollah was essentially created by Iran out of a kind of bunch of different disparate Shia groups and made into this kind of powerhouse militia to fight against Israel. And also, you know, they you know attacked the U.S. Marine peacekeeping mission in Beirut, in Lebanon. So there are big, like, serious terror attacks like that. There have been lots of attacks by, you know, Iranian proxy groups in Iraq on U.S. forces, etc. But a lot of it has to do with Iran's hostility to Israel and the U.S. relationship with Israel. But going back kind of early on, like, there's a lot of history. Um, before World War II, Britain dominated Iran's oil industry, after World War II, it was much more even reliant on Iran's kind of oil industry and, and the money and oil that it got after World War II decimated most of Europe. But then they, uh, Iran elected a nationalist, um, Mohammad Mossadegh. He became the prime minister in 1951, and he basically moves to nationalize Iran's entire oil industry. The UK and the US, uh, as close partners with Britain, really do not like that idea. They do not want the nationalization of Iran's oil because Britain was having all control of it for the most part. And in the relationships that it had with the Iranian oil companies uh, were very heavily skewed in Britain's favor. There's also a little bit of Cold War stuff going on here. There was issues and concerns about the Soviet influence in northern Iran. So U.S. already had like a lot of kind of operatives in Iran that were basically there to make sure that the Soviets didn't go any further and communism didn't take over. And so they decided to basically foment a coup and overthrow Mossadegh because they didn't want, you know, the nationalization of oil. They installed the Shah of Iran. He is incredibly brutal, uh, just imprisoning, torturing Iranians. 
Then you have the Iranian Revolution in 1979 that changed pretty much everything. Um, The Islamic Revolution overthrows the Shah. The Shah flees to America. He's there for cancer treatment, but it's pretty clear that he went to America for protection. And the Iranian, mostly students uh, who were involved in the Islamic Revolution, are really mad at America, and they take a bunch of hostages at the embassy and hold them for, what, 444 days? That was basically, like, the moment. If you wanted to pick one moment where Iran became the international bad guy, at least in the eyes of Americans, but also a lot of other countries. This was like a huge no-no. You do not touch other countries' diplomats. They are supposed to have immunity. They're supposed to be protected. They are there as representatives, officials of the government. And they were held hostage in a really horrible visual kind of 24-hour cable news coverage of this. It was on every American's television set. It was international news coverage everywhere. And that's kind of the moment. Jen, Jen, to sort of shorten this right to to the answer, it seems like what you're saying, your take on this anyway, is it's a conjunction of the historical U.S.-Iranian relationship and geopolitical enmity, like reasons relating to allies and enemies in common that lead the U.S. and Iran to be at such loggerheads and the U.S. to treat Iran as such a dangerous enemy, perhaps even disproportionate to its actual human rights record, which is very bad. But as the questioner said, no worse than a lot of other countries that we're aligned with. Right. And going to the just the modern times with the nuclear program, right? Like, we have a lot of interest in preventing nuclear proliferation in the U.S., but Israel has nuclear weapons, uh, even though nobody talks about it. And so the, the nuclear concern in particular, most of the reason why the U.S. is concerned about that is not because we really think that Iran would hit us with a nuclear weapon if they were to get one. Developing those capabilities are, would be a lot harder than being able to essentially have a nuclear deterrent against Israel and potentially be able to actually hit Israel or just have that power to be able to kind of throw its weight around more in a way that and get away with even more kind of what we call malign activities, right? Supporting terrorism, calling for the destruction of Israel, et cetera. So the U.S. has a vested interest in supporting Israel. We do not want Iran to get nuclear weapons for that reason. And so that's why, like, the concern there is different than, like, I don't know, somewhat related but different from North Korea. We're going to be doing, by the way, um, a a big series on nuclear weapons and and the big conflicts, the main flashpoints of nuclear conflicts, including North Korea and Iran, coming up in a few months for Worldly. So stay tuned for that. But basically, yeah, a lot of it has to go back to history. It has to do with U.S.-Israel relationship. It has to do with very bad things that Iran does actually do. Um, And kind of all together combined, the U.S. puts a lot of emphasis on trying to prevent Iran from getting any stronger, being any more threatening. But it's less about threatening lots of countries and more about threatening Israel and U.S. interests in the Middle East. Let's go on to our next question. This one is about an incident that you may remember from a little bit ago. The question is from Barry. And Barry asks, the big boat in the Suez Canal, you all remember this, right? A boat got stuck in this vital vital, vital area for global shipping. Uh, And it it got Barry thinking about global shipping and its ramifications on world politics. Control of routes has been an issue forever, but as online commerce grows and grows and climate change worsens, how much more can it be expected to become a central one? What are the global impacts of the Suez issue? Uh, So we're obviously past the boat being in the canal. We got this question a while ago. This shows how much how difficult it is for us to get to your questions in a timely fashion. We apologize for that. But, But the issue of... Keeping global shipping lanes open, it's a really important one 
Right, Alex? Like, this is not just like a jokey Bodie McBoatface situation, but but an actual serious I think you mean Bodie McStuckface. <laughs> just a big yes. old boat. Um, big boat. Big old boat. Although, of course, my my Navy sources would be, it's a ship, Alex. How dare you? Um, anyway. <laughs> of course uh, they would. Yes. They don't like it when you call them boats. They like ships and captains. And, anyway. Um, <laughs> look. Yeah, it was disruptive. And the reason it was disruptive is not only is the Suez Canal like a major throughway for global shipping, but it's, it was sort of indicative of like, if something like this happened or it was more serious or, you know, let's even imagine the big old boat got blown up, right? Then you start to ask questions about, okay, well, what does this mean about the safety of, of, of global trade and, and the maritime routes and all that? So let me take a step back. Uh, about 90% of all goods are transferred over the waves, right? So about nine of every 10 items roughly in your house <laughs> uh, or in the world's house were at some point shipped on a boat, which is kind of incredible, that rate is set to triple, by the way. Like th- there'll be three times as much stuff shipped <laughs> over overseas uh, by 2050. So like it's just gonna explode. And part of that is because, like you know, more people are be- again turning to the global middle class. They want more stuff. Um, there's also just a lot more people, so they're gonna want things. Um, so this does put a priority and a primacy on needing to protect these these global shipping lanes. Sometimes you hear things like, let's say, the free and open Indo-Pacific, right? Now, what is that? Oh, e- what I hear is that? that all the time, Alex, just on the street corner, just Yeah, everywhere. It's, it's everywhere. You, more, more and more people are saying free and open Pacific. <laughs> yeah. Look, you talk about John Cena rapping uh, as a Mark Wahlberg wannabe, and then you talk about the free and open Indo-Pacific. Um, and the reason this term has been agreed upon um, sort of coming out of Japan and, and and adopted by the U.S. and a bunch of its allies, et cetera, is for two reasons. One, free and open is a nod to, like, democratization in Asia, in that in that region. But it's also about the economy, a free and open economy. Uh, and the way you uh, allow for a free and open economy is to have a sort of democratic capitalist system, but also to ensure that when big old boats are shipping through, like, the Malacca Strait or other important sea lanes, that they can do so without being bothered and harassed. And this is vital because then you get your TV or your, you know, Pokemon cards or whatever you're buying these days. Um, are people still into Pokemon cards? Probably not. Um, Actually, there's been a huge spike in Pokemon card values during the coronavirus stuff. because People started collecting them, which means I need to sell my early foil Charizards like now. Yeah, like, no, I, that, I really, this is an important thing for me. To I do. didn't realize I was sitting on a gold mine. My goodness. I, I know. I have a lot of, I have a lot of just like money sitting around there. Oh man. It's like that and my Beanie Babies, which I absolutely have to sell at a high price. Uh, I feel like Beanie Babies are done. No, yeah, I, I, done. I got rid of those forever ago. I'm I'm interrupting to tell you guys that in preschool, I had Velcro light-up Pokemon shoes that I would wear every day. There you go. Listeners, that was Sophie Lalonde, our, our <laughs> producer, coming in. And because, we were absolutely like, she... going to make her leave that part in the show. Yeah. I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. She has, yeah she I have a t-shirt. That. I mean, I was I really liked Pokemon. You, you love to, to see it. Also, in 2016, when Pokemon Go came out, none of my friends would play it with me. So I literally walked around alone playing Pokemon Go. Oh, man. we Okay. I have a lot of... We can talk a lot about Pokemon Go because obviously I was super <laughs> okay. obsessed with it when it came out. But let's Pokemon Go back to global yeah, shipping. But all, all, all but all this to say is just like for the global economy to work, these shipping lanes need to be open. And and the way right now, like the U.S. and its allies are preparing to do that is by patrolling, right? Um, they send the Coast Guard out. They send a bunch of air and the planes are going out there. We, um, you know, we, we've got a lot of air power. We've got satellites. Like we're tracking a lot of this stuff. There are rules out there, but they're broken sometimes by certain countries, like trying to harass certain shipping lanes. Like you see this in um 
uh, with Iran and the Strait of Hormuz. You see this in, in um, near Chinese territory, et cetera, et cetera. So like th- this, go- this is going to be a bigger issue. And in the Arctic, the last point, um, which was asked in the question, is like it's melting, right? And it's opening up lanes that were not available until more recently. And it's there's a furious dash to use it because it will cut trade by multiple days, which will save billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars for companies over time. So like this is a weird perverse incentive that there are companies that, you know, they say we do not want climate change, like we're doing our best to reverse it. But at the same time, they're kind of secretly hoping like, yeah, but we can sell a lot more stuff and we can use a lot more routes and we can go more times of the year um, and, and save a lot of money in the process. So yeah, like this is, I would watch this space quite a bit because it's incredibly important. It's it's the backbone of our economy in a weird way. And like, it's only about to get hotter. One one thing I will say, in addition to what Alex just said, is that this issue about global commerce is one of the key arguments in the, the long running sort of background, but really important debate over U.S. global military deployments, right? So there's a whole conversation about whether the U.S. should dismantle its current network of bases and focus more on immediate interests in particular areas, move to an offshore balancing position, which is the term of the international relations literature for like not being too involved in regions and playing a role in it from the outside. That's an oversimplification, but it, it generally captures the gist of it. Uh, but I think one of the very, I think, important arguments in favor of a continued U.S. hegemonic military role globally is that somebody needs to keep these shipping lanes open, right? Like, we don't really see very much piracy anymore, but you may remember about 10 years ago, there was a huge spike in piracy in Somalia because of ungoverned spaces there, and it was like a big problem for international shipping, exacting significant costs on people in that area. You don't see that very much because, in part, there are a bunch of U.S. military deployments that deter anybody who might want to do that. It also deters states who, as part of a dispute with a neighbor or something like that, might want to shut down a shipping lane to exert pressure on them. Like, in general, it's in everybody's interest to keep these shipping lanes open, broadly speaking. But individual in individual cases, certain actors, non-state or state-based, have the ability to shut it down and do significant damage to the global economy, which means significant damage to real people's lives, because people depend on this. And someone needs to secure this. Someone's got to do it. Right now, it's the U.S. If the U.S. scales back its military ambition significantly, who's going to do it? I'm not saying this is a knockdown, like the U.S. needs to be the world's policeman type argument, but it's something that doesn't get brought up a lot and I think is really important and worth taking seriously when we talk about the sort of big picture issues in U.S. foreign and defense policy. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because one of the explicit things that like the Navy is talking about in the U.S., for creating, they want like 355 ships right now. And they're like, look, we need this in order to not only like defend the U.S. and like maybe prepare for a war with China and all that kind of stuff, but also there's a lot of sea out there that we need to help protect. And like, we just don't have the resources. Granted, we have planes and satellites, but like it is a different thing to actually be out there and sort of just like play traffic cop, essentially. Um, And the fact that the Chinese Navy is like larger in terms of ships, perhaps not in terms of power, but in terms of ships, like this is one of the worries is that right now we are the traffic cop China may want to be the traffic cop. And like, do we have the resources to to assure that? And like, what does a world in which China is guaranteeing the freedom and openness and of of these sea lanes like that? That's different. And it might work out, but it also might not. And like the devil, you know, is, um, you know, sometimes better. So anyway, this is like this is all of a part of a much bigger piece of uh, like, again, the backbone of the global economy. It's like not a small thing. So we're going to go to the last question that we're going to be able to tackle today. Um, I hope you've enjoyed the answer so far. This one is from Jennifer. Uh, not Jen, our current host, or Jen, the 
Jen Kirby, our frequent sub-host and, and contributor to the foreign section. I mean, I have already been accused of planting one question. So, yes, this, <laughs> this is not this my is question not, this is not also. You. <laughs> uh, so this is from Jennifer, and she says, as, <laughs> again, not the same Jennifer. Will you guys be able to recommend some books I should definitely read or resources I should definitely use? So, yeah, we have a ton of recommendations because we are always reading about the stuff and things related to the podcast. Um, I'll start by talking about a book I just finished last night, which is uh, Ramachandra Guha's India After Gandhi. Uh, I really, really, really liked this book. It is very long. It's 900 pages, and it took me a long time to read it. I just When I was giving my daughter a bottle every night, I would just open the book up and read as many pages as I could until Ellie was ready to sleep and then finish it. And so I, I finished it over the course of a long time. But uh, it's a great sort of high-level overview of what has happened in India since roughly just before independence and then forward. So Gandhi's in the book a little bit, despite the title, but it's really not about him. It's one of those things that if you are interested in a country, but it's like, you know, you're not an expert on it, it really helps you get a good grounding in the politics and society that help explain the current trajectory of Indian politics. You know, you get a sense of the importance of class, caste, religion, gender, and the way that these deep social divides have driven cross-cutting political currents across Indian history. You get a sense of how dominant not just the Congress party has been, which is you know the, the traditional center-left party in India, but specifically the family of Jawaharlal Nehru, who are now are the Gandhis, though no relation to actual Gandhi. This one family has dominated the Congress party in Indian politics until very recently, and it's had a really distorting effect uh, in some ways, but also a beneficial effect in others, right? It's a complex story that helps you get a sense of why India is is on this march, concerning march, towards a more seemingly anti-democratic future, which is something it's done in the past, by the way, under Indira Gandhi, most notably, in, in a situation called the emergency in the 70s. So it, it helps you understand, to a significant degree, why Narendra Modi is able to do the things that he does. Uh, and the way in which he is undermining Indian democracy. At the same time, it gives you a sense of humility about declaring that Indian democracy is about to die or on the verge of dying or collapsing, because that's that's been said before many times. Right? There have been many, many, especially Western observers, arguing that India was not capable of sustaining itself as a united country and a united democracy. You know, there's language is a huge issue because there's so many different places uh, with so many different languages. And there's no uniting religion, right? There are huge divides over religious and ethnic minorities. And, you know, people have long said that you just can't sustain a democratic polity under these conditions. And yet, somehow, India has persevered since the 40s. And that, to me, suggests that any requiems for Indian democracy are a little bit, uh, a little bit too early, even if things are looking pretty bad there. How long was that book, Zach? Too long. No, it's not too long. It's a great book. How many pages? Why are you bringing this up? I'm, I'm the one who's just I'm, just... I'm just. I'm just curious. I think it's relevant. It's relevant. It's a fair okay. question. It's maybe. Around, I already said it. It's maybe around 900, 900 pages. Nine hundred. Yeah, about nine hundred pages. Okay. It's pretty long. But hey, you know, uh, Zach has a new baby that he has to put to sleep, uh, and you know, doing some reading. Bedtime reading. Bedtime reading. It's it's good. You you tackle it a little bit at a time. It's doable. <laughs> There's no deadline. You're not you're not going to get quizzed on this. This is just for your own edification. So go for it. Oh, I'm I'm working up a 20 question exam soon enough. <laughs> All right, Alex, you go because I'm still deciding on mine. <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, I part of the reason I brought up the page numbers, I want to cheat and recommend the number of books that equal the amount of pages that Zach read for that one. <laughs> one uh, book, one book per person. Uh, we have, that's annoying. We have time uh, here. Okay. I will do, um, and I think I mentioned on the show before, but I highly recommend it because it opened my mind to a whole bunch of things. It's called AI Superpowers by a guy named Kaifu Lee. Look, I'm, I'm basically a Luddite. Like I only have Twitter and I use an email client to do my emails and like, and that's basically it. I'm not on Instagram or anything like that. So like, I'm not really big on tech. So if you're like me and you need sort of a primer on like how tech is shaping our politics, I highly recommend this book because it focuses on China in the US and like artificial intelligence and, and how like China has advanced technologically to the point that they didn't even need credit cards. They went straight from like cash to mobile-based payments. And how, for example, like China's light years ahead of us and perhaps on artificial intelligence or can get there because they have so many institutes and they spend so much time. And like maybe it's just too late for the U.S. to catch up. And what is it? What does that world look like when China is and has the best and most effective artificial intelligence that can power anything, anything? There are certain parts of the book I, I will admit that I found kind of hokey. You know, I didn't like all parts of it, but that that first half which basically laid out like, what is artificial intelligence? What is the U.S. doing? What is China doing? Who has the lead in certain areas? Who's going to keep the lead? That's highly, highly important for our future. And it just showed me that there's this whole sort of like, I don't want to use war or battle, but there is a sort of race, I guess, to control the technology of the future. And this book made me realize that like, I don't think it's looking good for the U.S. right now, like at all. And it's possible that America doesn't catch up. I know that I see a lot of commentary about like, oh, the U.S. has this lead and like China's catching up. But this book at least makes the case that it's the opposite. That's the other way that China has the lead, that America is behind and that America might not catch up. And so that puts us at a technological disadvantage. And you hear the Biden administration talk often about like we want to win the 21st century, we want to you know invest in the technologies of the future. But it could be too little too late. Not to say that like America should give up, but it's to say that this book at least made me think and start to consider that it's possible that our technological future will be dominated more by like Chinese norms and American norms. So yeah, I highly recommend you read it. Uh, it's it's pity. It's it's short. And I will give Jen credit because she once saw it in like a pile of books and like threw it at me. She's like, you should read this. I think it'll be good. Um, and I did sort of like on a whim on a day. I was like, oh, this is actually perhaps the most important book I've read in the last decade. So I highly recommend it. I'm occasionally uh, helpful. All right. So I'm going to do a book that's actually a little bit old now, but I think it's a really useful book, and it's called Conflict After the Cold War. Uh, it's actually a book that I studied in one of my classes in undergrad um, in international relations, and it's uh, it's from 2007. So like I said, it's a little bit old, but I don't think it's um, – I, I think it, it's still really useful. I don't think it's outdated um, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, it basically includes like a bunch of different – papers, studies, discussions. Uh, it's like a, a reader um, of different interesting views, articles on everything from, you know, political, economic, social, military factors that underlie conflict, political violence that have been driving our international relations since the Cold War. It includes like different perspectives. So it'll have um, a well-known essay from Samuel Huntington called A Clash of Civilizations that is super controversial and that I have railed against hmm. for uh, many years. Is um, that an important text? I feel like I should read it. <laughs> I want to check it out. Yeah. Um, you know, basically <laughs> argues that conflict was going to be coming along civilizational lines and defined it in very interesting ways um, uh, that I disagree with. But 
you know, it'll have that essay, and then right after it has an essay from Amartya Sen. Uh, I, uh, I don't remember the exact title, but uh, Clash of Civilizations or, or How to, you know, Misunderstand Everyone in the World, something like that, that basically pushes back against it and saying that, you know, that's not how identity works. Um, the people have multiple layers of identity and that, for example, like you don't walk around thinking of yourself necessarily as like, I am part of a Western civilization. So it talks about how, you know, in different contexts, you have different identities, uh, et cetera. So it has lots of different kind of um, perspectives like that. It's a really fascinating reader. It's pretty accessible. It's an introductory kind of text for for undergrads, but it has a lot of smart and interesting arguments that you will see kind of played out over and over again in international relations conversations and foreign policy conversations and gets at like the underlying themes driving stuff. So highly recommend it. It's uh, edited by Richard K. Betts. It's it's a really smart book. And, you know, like I said, it's a little bit old, but uh, the, the ideas that are presented in the book uh, are still incredibly relevant today. All right, everybody, that's our show. I want to thank uh, Sophie, who you heard from earlier today. She is behind the scenes always lurking there, but today she finally got to make her debut at the podcast. I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, we're there. And we'll see you next week. Hope you enjoyed the questions getting answered. And please, please, please send us more. Again, it's worldly at vox.com. Thanks a lot. Talk to you all next week. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the PropG Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.